Hi, welcome to Research in Focus, a podcast exploring the work of Latrobe researchers. I'm Lauren Gorn. Most of what we learn in Australian history is about major events that shape Australian culture. But new focus on the economic history of Australia is revealing a rich and often untold story. Anne Rees is a David Myers Research Fellow in History at La Trobe University, whose research focuses on the social and economic history of Australia. Anne, welcome to Research in Focus. Thank you for having me. Why is it important to pay attention to economic history as well as social history? Well, I think we need to always understand the economic dimensions of our past to get the kind of fully well-rounded picture. And over the last few decades in Australian history, that's been a little bit pushed to the side because in the sort of 1980s and 1990s, uh, we had, you know, the cultural turn, the rise of post-structuralism. Suddenly everyone wanted to look at cultural history and histories of ideas and discourse. And mainstream historians kind of forgot a little bit, bit about where, um, you know, the economy fits in that picture. But then obviously in the last decade or so, the economy has just kind of dominated current events in the world. Since the um, global financial crisis, people are really starting to think again about, um, you know, that fundamental questions about the nature of our economic system, whether capitalism is a system that works, whether it's going to continue to work in the future. And in this moment, historians are really beginning to think again about where economy fits, where the history of the economy fits into this story, and realising that actually historians have a lot to contribute to these current events. Because every time we tell, um, we make claims about the nature of capitalism, about other um, kinds of economic possibilities, they're generally based in a kind of story about where we've been and where we're going. And historians, of course, as the scholars who um, study the past, we're really the best place, I think, to be kind of telling really sophisticated and nuanced versions of those stories. So in response to the kind of what's going on in the world, historians like myself and many others, both in Australia and overseas, have really started to return to the economic in Australian history and try to, you know, write some new histories that help um, scholars, but also people outside the academy, underst better understand our economic world and our economic futures. So when things are going well, you know, people as a whole generally don't think about the economy very much. And that's true for historians as well. It, it seems that we kind of, things were going well for a couple of decades and we didn't really pay attention to it. Um, and then we're, we're returning to it now. It's uh, you know, something that obviously dominates a lot of our lives. We see a lot of media coverage given to economics and the job sector. So it can be just, it can be a bit surprising for people to discover this is quite a new field compared to other kind of schools of inquiry or areas of, of research or areas of practice. Um, you're currently working on a history of the economic profession in Australia. What have you learnt about this field and Australia's contribution to economics through your work? Well, a few things. I, I think for me, I mean, I was someone, because I was trained um, as a historian during the kind of heyday of cultural history. So I, you know, didn't do a lot of economic history and I didn't think it was something that was interested in. But over the last few years, as I've kind of begun to grapple with these questions, what has really fascinated me is just how... Um, 
how quickly the economic profession emerged in Australia and how quickly they became incredibly powerful. And when did that happen? So that happened basically between the 1910s and the 1920s. You know, I think it's easy today because we so often take for granted that economists are these incredibly sophisticated experts who understand all these complicated models about economy and finance and everything works, to kind of take for granted that they've always been there, um, kind of, you know, telling politicians what to do, advising um, banks and so on. But really, 100 years ago, economists as a profession didn't really exist in Australia. And the few economists who were around were actually not seen as reliable experts at all. They were seen as kind of, you know, leftist ideologues who Mm. were very closely aligned with the socialist um, movement and could not be trusted what were they what was they kind of arguing for in terms of economic models that made them not to be trusted maybe by politicians or businesses well these were um in the 1910s and early 20s the dominant economist in australia particularly um australia's first economic professor professor at the university of sydney called rb irvine they were really sort of utopian idealists who thought economics was the discipline that would create a better world. Right. So they were arguing for essentially, um, you know, what we might now think of as redistributive justice. They wanted to, you know, improve on what at the time was already Australia's pretty good record for high standard of living for white male workers, but to make that even um to broaden that out, so to kind of take wealth away from those in power to workers. They wanted to empower workers educationally through schemes like the Workers' Educational Union. Um, and they even kind of, you know, they were flirting with various um, iterations of socialism, with anarchism, with syndicalism, at a moment sort of particularly after the end of World War One, where the world just seemed in crisis and, you know, the kind of economic... Um, nature of the, of the future really seemed up for grabs. Right. So this is a very uh, perhaps different model of The Economist than, than we might think of today as very um, conservative or driven by kind of profit model type economic policies. Definitely. They saw, you know, the idea that economics was about kind of um, optimising profits would seem totally anathema to them. For them, economics was the discipline that was about making the world a better place for everyone. And when did that start to change? Well, it starts to change very quickly in uh, the early 1920s where there's a real kind of generational shift. Um, The older economists such as Irvine who were very um, utopian and seen as very ideological, Mm -hmm. they um, start to retire. In many cases they're sort of pushed out because they're unpopular with um, elite interests. And then... Uh, what's sort of been simmering along in the background is that World War One has sort of created an opening for um, experts of various stripes to sort of claim new areas of authority and um, expertise and sort of put themselves out there as the people who should be guiding governments and businesses. Right. So from that kind of simmering background, there emerges uh, D.B. Copeland, who is a young um Economist then working at the University of Tasmania. He's been brought in from New Zealand. And he kind of represents the model of a, of a new breed of economist, the sort of economist as technocrat, who is a scientist, who is out to find the facts, to find truth, 
and use that truth to tell politicians of various different stripes how they should manage the economy to maximise profit. So much more the kind of economist that we might think of today. Yes, yeah. I think, you know, we can really think of Copeland as Australia's sort of first modern economist. And he becomes very successful at... um, networking with the business community, um, with Chambers of Commerce. He builds up the Economic Society of Australia. And within only about sort of five years or so, suddenly he's, you know, talking to the private secretary of the Prime Minister to organise that um, the Prime Minister should sort of get him and a bunch of other economists to do a major inquiry into the tariff system in Australia. Right. Even though you see this emergence of a very pro-business um type of economist, a lot of people might be unaware that since Federation, we've actually been quite an economic innovator, especially around um, the kind of social economic models that you were talking about. So things like the minimum wage and the old age pension that in Australia, a lot of people uh, really kind of take for granted in many ways. How did these kind of, how did Australia become such an economic innovator? And how did these really shape uh, the kind of cultural history that you also study? Well, I think, yeah, we often forget that Australia, around the moment of federation, really led the world in terms of um, in terms of progressive social policy. And I think that's kind of the fascinating uh, disjunct in Australian history, that this uh, economic profession emerges quite late. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what we might call state economic experiment, Australia is really a global trailblazer in terms of things like a national um, minimum wage, which was brought in with the 1907 Harvester Judgment, um, maternity allowance. So that was allowance. very, very early in Australia's uh, history as, an, as a nation. It's only six years after Exactly. The and also on a global stage because, you know, the US doesn't get minimum wages of this type until the late 1930s, for right. instance. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, there's a few different explanations for why Australia is so advanced mm-hmm. in this way. I mean, a lot of it... Um, comes out of the sense of Australia being a new a new world, a kind of, you know, a, a place where new ideas can be experimented with. And a lot of this, um, these kind of early Federation experiments come date back to the sort of mid-19th century, the colonial era, right. when we had... Um, you know, the, the the eight hours movement that was started in Melbourne in the 1850s to get the first kind of eight-hour day in the world. So, and that wasn't just an Australian phenomenon because I think in Australia some people know the history of the eight-hour day mm. but they don't realise that it's a it's a global thing. Australia was, was a trailblazer in there. Yeah, it's um, like... In that, in that sort of period between Federation in 1901 and the sort of the First World War, progressives from all around the world were coming to Australia to see, you know, how Australia was so radical and whether they could, we could, you know, other countries could adopt our ideas. And that also translated into a lot of Australian economists and sort of policy exports then going out into the world and being quite influential in things like the League of Nations Um and, you know, later the UN. So Australia, because it was so innovative in terms of its economic and social policy, actually had a kind of disproportionate global influence in these conversations in the early 20th century. One of these experts that you talk about, uh, you have an article about Persia Campbell, who is an Australian economist, uh, whose work was of real global influence in the early and mid 20th century. Uh, But even though she's an amazing Australian who who kind of really 
embedded herself in in global economic thought. We I had never heard of her, and um, it it feels like she's a, a kind of forgotten figure of Australia's twentieth century history. Um, in studying Persia Campbell and her influence, what did you learn about how her Australian background shaped her economic theory and and the kind of influence that she did have? Well, what I've come to think is that Persia Campbell's Australian training was really key to the kind of very unusual um, and creative uh, vision she had of economic systems um, on the global stage. So Persia Campbell was... um, an economist born in Australia in the 1890s. She's one of the first women to study economics in Sydney in the 1910s. And she's actually one of the students of D.B. Irvine, the radical economist I mentioned earlier. Right. And so she gets totally enraptured by his vision of using economics to build a better world. Um, She later works uh, in um, various state bodies, looking into kind of economic welfare policy, into looking at the minimum wage. And she gets really fascinated by thinking about the economy in terms of placing the consumer, which is sort of her, you know, language for the ordinary human being in the centre of the frame. Right. That we make economic policy not so it's going to maximise profit, but so it's going to maximise consumer well-being. And in this paradigm... Um, you know, standards of living or living standards becomes the kind of key indicator of economic progress. It's a very different uh, focus to what a lot of economic policy currently looks at. Yeah, it really kind of flips it on its head, I think. You know, we the kind of conventional model for measuring progress is what it's often called producerist, like we measure it through production outputs yeah. and metrics like GNP. But Campbell kind of propounded what I've called a kind of consumerist economics or later a consumerist development economics in which she inverts that model and says, no, we don't want to focus on out on production outputs and GNP, we want to focus on consumers and their standard of living. And that's an idea that she very much got from Australia where standard of living was really the kind of the guiding light of um, government policy in the first few decades of the so she's one of, 20s, of the century. Sorry. <laughs> so she's one of the most early, she's one of the earliest trained economists in Australia mm. um, at a time when um, the fact that women were going to university and studying to be awarded degrees is still a kind of exciting thing. Uh, she trains with who is then one of Australia's leading economists and then she uh, moves overseas mm. and takes these ideas with her. And what happens then? So she moves overseas in the late 20s um, to New York. Initially it was just going to be a short-term research fellowship, but she falls in love, she gets married, has kids, so she ends up staying um, based in New York for the rest of her career. And she becomes this kind of has this extraordinarily rapid rise despite being a mother to two young children and a single parent because her husband dies quite early on. She becomes first a leader in the American consumer movement, which is a movement that emerges in response to the Great Depression, the sense that, you know, ordinary people are in economic crisis. We need to, um, you know, change the way we do economics um, to focus on their interests. So there's a kind of what's called a consumer kind of activist movement that emerges around looking after ordinary people. And then through her kind of national leadership in that field, uh, she becomes a very high-profile government advisor, advising um, first the New York state government um, and then she becomes an advisor to several presidents, including JFK. And in parallel to that, she has this impressive career on the international stage. 
So once the United Nations is founded mm-hmm. um, uh, in the aftermath of World War Two, she um, quickly becomes a very prominent figure in all the discussions that are going on around the UN about economic development and, you know, what was called the developing world. Right. Um, she represents the United States at early meetings of the Food and Agriculture Organization and later becomes UN representative for various NGOs that she's part of. And so she's a really high-profile economist in, in this sphere and still drawing on her training from Australia. Completely, completely. You know, she's talking to presidents. She's, um, you know, steering committees at the UN. She was well-known for being a sort of figure who just basically kind of loitered around the UN, um, you know, (laughs) constantly. And so she she just kind of got to know everyone. So she's a fabulous example of uh, one of these women in UN circles, and there were quite a few of them, who didn't necessarily uh, become the most high-profile figure in terms of their official appointments. But because they were constantly sitting on committees, they were constantly networking behind the scenes, they actually knew everyone and they were really, really influential in the kind of high-level discussions that were going on. It really gives you a different perspective on the United Nations. We tend to think of it as all, you know, formal bodies and and kind of nation-state interests coming together and then you have this individual who kind of finds her place within this ecosystem. Mm. And there is actually, she was, you know, one of a a large number that there's some interesting research going on at the moment about this kind of, you know, underworld um, in a sense of women and other kind of marginalised lobbyists who were kind of, you know, sort of uh, floating around the diplomats and actually having a quite surprising degree of influence. But they kind of tend to have gotten written out of conventional histories of the UN, which just focus on the people who have the kind of official positions of power. Right, whereas that's not actually how things were working. Not at all, not at all. We tend to think of uh, kind of consumer models of behaviour kind of driven very much by things like overconsumption these days or or kind of um, that people aren't given enough, people constantly want more things. That's mm. kind of our model of consumers. But that was a very different idea of consumers than Persia Campbell had when she was working on her models. How how has the idea of the consumer changed with economic thought and comparing kind of her work with contemporary ideas? Yeah, I, I think it's very fair to say that when we project contemporary ideas of consumers and consumption and consumerism on, back onto someone like Campbell, we get a very... Um, kind of false idea of what she was talking about. Um, because, you know, today we tend to think of those words to connote the kind of excesses of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Whereas for her, they were really about social justice. I mean, I've come to think that she used these words in a sort of Trojan horse sense. It was a way for her to kind of use economic language and concepts and get the prestige that came with that to... Um, but to within that economic framework to actually be promoting uh, quite radical social welfareist ideas that would benefit uh, women and children and other actors that are often going to get marginalised in economic discussions that focus on labour and producers. Yeah. For her, consumers were these kind of neglected third party, which, you know, is kind of everyone, everyone is a consumer, but it does kind of bringing consumers into the discussion does disproportionately benefit 
people who are not <laughs> producers and or um, or labour and have yeah. therefore kind of been marginalised to begin with. Yeah, children aren't heading off to work by the mid twentieth century, mostly. Hopefully, mostly. So. Though, though, in um, you know, in the developing world where she talked about these issues, they potentially were. Yeah. And for her, the kind of language of consumer economics was a way for her to kind of again flip the dominant understanding of economic. Um, development on its head, that instead of, you know, raising up the developing world, so to speak, by just kind of, you know, pumping in money to, you know, build factories to get the kind of national GDP up to scratch and hoping that somehow that wealth would just trickle down and benefit ordinary people, what she said was that instead of, you know, building dams and factories and, you know, these big kind of production-oriented projects, we should actually... Our kind of guiding question should be, is this going to benefit ordinary people? Should You know, we should focus on the consumers and yet we might need economic growth to some extent, but we should only promote economic growth insofar as it's actually going to benefit the consumer and their everyday life. So that's a very, a very uh, individual consumer-focused model that doesn't necessarily see the consumer as kind of gluttonous or stupid or kind of constrained by the system either. Exactly. And I mean, I think you can make the critique that, you know, it's still very much within the logic of capitalism and, you know, positioning ordinary humans as economic agents rather than just human beings who might deserve (laughs) rights and, you know, well-being just, you know, through virtue of their humanity. I mean, it's still a kind of an economistic vision of development. But my sense is that she did that in quite a savvy way, that she realised that economics was the language that was being used in you know, halls of power to discuss these issues. And if she wanted to kind of push a welfarist agenda, she needed to use that same economistic language. How has developing a perspective on the kind of history of economic development in the 20th century help you navigate kind of contemporary issues? There's a lot of talk about the kind of whether kind of uh, current models of capitalism are running their course uh, or if or if there's something new that's going to happen, how does having a historical perspective help you uh, read what's happening in contemporary economics? Well, I think the most powerful thing history can begin can bring to these conversations is that it denaturalizes our kind of current economic present. You know, a lot of commentators, um, people like George Monbiot and others, who are sort of you know trying to grapple with what se- what a lot of people are calling a crisis in capitalism. Um, there's a real sense that the main barrier to getting people to think outside of a kind of capitalist economic order is that it feels like capitalism's always been there and that it's sort of inherent to human human nature and we're just sort of built to, you know... Well, the economists have done such a good job of compelling us to think it's the best model, Exactly, exactly. So there's a sense that we need a new story and I basically think what history can bring is that it can show that... Capitalism hasn't always been there, that it was a kind of, it's a human invention that came about in a very particular time and place. It was contested and, you know, it's constantly been evolving. And so therefore, you know, humans, if humans create it, humans also have the power to shape it and create kind of new futures which might work um, better for ordinary people. Thank you so much, Anne, for joining us in Research and Focus today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Research in Focus is a La Trobe University podcast produced by Laurie Zion and Lauren Gorn. Support for this podcast comes from La Trobe University's Transforming Human Societies Research Focus Area. 
This podcast is edited by Max Robbins and Margaret Purdom and hosted by Upstart. Our music is Bright Future by Silent Partner. Thank you.